think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. Multiple pathways for a common purpose. We're looking at a human being and there's a life story. 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 Hey, this is what's going on. An elevated Denver starts now. Welcome to episode one of Elevated Denver. What's an elevated Denver? It's a city in which all of our neighbors meet their basic needs and pursue their dreams within the boundaries of a healthy ecosystem. That city doesn't exist yet, but working together, business, government, nonprofits, and residents can make it happen. And this podcast is a map of sorts that can help us understand where we've come from, where we are, and ideally, where we need to go from here to cultivate an elevated Denver. My name is Nathan Havey, and I'll be your host, along with my two collaborators. I'm Jonna. This is Tony. Denver is a great place to live, and the economy is booming, and that's awesome. But just under the surface of that awesomeness, 44% of our friends and neighbors here in Denver are unable to meet their basic needs without some form of assistance. 44%. That's almost half of us. In this series, we begin to explore what's going on here by starting with a particular focus on the most extreme example of this disparity, the systems that result in people becoming unhoused. We'll look at what's being done to fix those systems and help those people, whether it's working, and if not, we'll explore what else needs to happen so that all of our friends and neighbors can not just survive, but thrive. We took great care to build trust with the people that you're going to meet to ensure that when they agreed to participate in this project, they had time to consider and were free to say a genuine yes or no. Thanks to their thoughtful courage, you'll hear their stories, understand their perspective, and hopefully see new opportunities to cultivate an elevated Denver. The stories in this series are real and they are raw, so I need to give a warning that what lies ahead may be triggering for some listeners. So with that said, let's play a brief contemplative musical interlude and dive in. In our first round of interviews, we recorded three leading voices on homelessness in Denver. I'm gonna introduce them briefly and then I'll let them take it away. So first up, this is Kathy Alderman. Kathy is the Chief Communications and Public Policy Officer for Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. My parents always tell the story about taking me to New York for the first time and I saw people sleeping outside and I, it, it shook me. I mean, it, I still remember it. From that moment, I really started thinking about how can we live in a world where people don't have homes? How can we live in a world where people can't go see a doctor? How can we live in a world where people don't have access to food? All of those things that so many of us take for granted, 
I just believe that we have created too many systems where too many people are falling through the cracks. And we have to really be intentional about how we get people access to the things that many of us take for granted, like healthcare, like housing, like a voice in our community. Next is Therese Howard. She's one of the founders of Denver Homeless Out Loud and is now with an organization called House Keys Action Network Denver. I did not come from homelessness myself, but during the Occupy movement of 2011, spending a great deal of time living outside at encampments with folks who were without housing. We talk to, you know, hundreds of people who are living on the streets and document that input and use that to inform what policies we fight for. If those very people are not involved in giving input and informing that decision, then we are making you know, bad decisions. Because of the nature of homelessness, you really have to go out on the streets and talk to people directly where folks are at, as opposed to assuming that everybody's going to show up to some big public meeting or something like that. And last but not least, Cole Chandler, the executive director of Colorado Village Collaborative. I came to care about the issue of homelessness when I was in high school doing required community service. It was actually a food service line, and the director, when I showed up to volunteer, he could tell I was a little nervous, and he said, hey, just go talk to people and ask them where they slept last night. Ever since that moment, I've been trying to help people find a better answer to that question. I helped start a community house, and we kept a spare bedroom in that house that we used to welcome people coming off the streets. So from 2010 through 2020, I lived with people experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. We live in a city where a thousand people are sleeping outside tonight, and that is a completely solvable problem. Now that we've met a few of our local leaders on this issue, let's ask them, how do our neighbors become unhoused? Everybody remembers the vision of the hobo who was train jumping and, you know, didn't want to comply with the rules. And that stereotype has been very persistent. But when you offer people housing, 99% of them will take it. So that I want to be off the grid, I don't want to follow the rules, vision of people experiencing homelessness just doesn't bear out. The reality is that over the last 60, 70, 80 years, wages have remained stagnant while housing prices have skyrocketed. In America, housing prices tend to rise 5 to 10% a year, while wages only rise 1 to 3% a year. And so you can see over time that that curve just simply won't keep up. For many people, they are a paycheck away from losing housing. Right now, the minimum wage in Colorado is $12 an hour, but you need $25 an hour in order to afford you know, a two-bedroom unit in the city of Denver. And so people have to make these very difficult decisions about paying so much for housing that maybe they don't pay for health care, they don't pay for child care, they don't pay for food, or what happens most often is that they lose their home. Do I pay for my medication this month or do I pay for my rent? Well, if that medication is life-saving and your home is life-saving, how do you make that decision? Well, it's really difficult when someone is evicted for them to find another affordable place to live. 
especially with rents as high as they are in Denver and so many landlords requiring a security deposit plus first month's rent plus last month's rent. That can be up to $5,000. And if you can't afford your current rent, it's very unlikely that you have $5,000 saved to get you into another place. What about mental health and substance abuse issues? Are those a major cause of homelessness? Mental health issues don't often lead to homelessness, but they certainly run concurrent with it. And that's because the experience of homelessness is so traumatic that people often look to self-medicate. And generally, somebody is coming from a trauma situation that led to their homelessness. And then the experience of homelessness itself is so traumatic that it really creates a vicious cycle that can be very hard to get out of without the right support. In the 1990s, Kaiser Permanente commissioned a study called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. They were working with middle-class people in California who had good health insurance, but they were noticing that people were having some chronic health conditions and wondering why. And so a doctor started asking some questions about childhood trauma. Did you experience mental, physical, sexual abuse in your home as a child? Did you grow up in a home where your mother or your father was abused by the other parent? Did you grow up in a home where someone was in jail? So it was all these questions around, how did you absorb trauma as a child? And what they found was that for every single time a person answered yes to a question like this, their health outcomes as an adult were worse. They were also more likely to experience homelessness. This was in a middle-class community. For people that come to this issue and say, well, what is wrong with them? What is wrong with these people experiencing homelessness? If they could do a little bit of a mind shift and say, what happened to these individuals? And take a trauma-informed approach, they would find that they're not all that unlike each other. You know, this individual had a falling out with a family member and had no other place to go. This individual was in an abusive relationship and had to escape it. This individual had a medical emergency, a death, a broken down car, a loss in job. All of those things that so many of us experience, but some of us have access to safety nets that others don't have access to. If you hadn't had that support, where do you think you would be today? We'll be right back. A frequent question we get about this podcast is, who funded it? Well, uh, we did. Which is to say that this is an independent production that was a labor of love. But our plan is to use this space to highlight some of the great work that sponsor organizations are doing to cultivate an elevated Denver. And if you're listening to this piece of audio, it means that there's room for us to share your story right here. We'll work with you to write a one to two minute story about the good work that you're doing and how it came to be. And then I'll read it and we'll play it right here so that more people can learn about your commitment to this community. That's good for you and it's good for us because your sponsorship will help this work and help us get it out to more people. If you want the details, just go to the contact page at www.elevateddenver.co and fill out the form and we'll be in touch. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back. Let's continue the discussion with Kathy, Therese, and Cole. Next, let's ask this question. When our neighbors lose stable housing, what do they do? We see a lot of people reach out to family and friends and you know start the process of sleeping on their couch, but that only lasts so long. Or we see people seeking out shelter services. If you had the entire homeless population of Denver that was trying to access those existing shelters, we would be about 90% short of the capacity. But even more important is the reasons that people don't want to go into a shelter. These are not homes. These are warehouses where you put people with extreme control, countless rules, arbitrary enforcement, and just the conditions that you're gonna get when you have hundreds of people sleeping in a warehouse three feet away from each other. That's not a place that a lot of people feel comfortable. People use a lot of different tactics to survive. There's people who bus hop all night. There's people that hide in abandoned warehouses. There's people that find little nooks and crannies where you can hide. There's people that stay up all night and then sleep in a library in the day. So yeah, tents are more visible and that's what you know we'll think of a lot when we think of street homelessness. But that's like the people who are a little bit better. If you're in an encampment, you're not living alone, which is often done for safety and for network of resources. You know, you have to take a lot more things into consideration than you do when you have a house. When it's cold, you really have to work to ensure that you have proper gear, enough blankets, sleeping bags, so on, or other ways of having small fires to create heat which is of course dangerous. You're choosing between two evils there. You're choosing freezing to death or having a fire that could be dangerous. You know, and then the other major consideration is basic sanitation and water. Things like where to go to the bathroom, where to get water become a strategy you have to figure out because businesses by and large do not accommodate folks. Comparable to UN standards for water for people in third world countries, people living in encampments or just on the streets in Denver have less access to water than those basic standards. Now, let's ask about the effectiveness of Denver's camping ban. You know, we go back to 2012 when Denver passes a law called the Unauthorized Camping Ban which effectively states that it's illegal to eat, sleep, store your possessions, or cover yourself with a blanket in public space. The enforcement of the camping ban looks like a cop with a badge and a gun coming up to you who are sleeping with, say, a tarp or a tent or just a sleeping bag or, or even just a piece of cardboard under you, coming up to you and telling you that you're violating the law, you have to get up and move, and if you don't, I can arrest you. This type of enforcement happens all across our city every day, mostly unseen. It has the effect of forcing you to take all your property and move somewhere else. And that can be in the middle of the night, it can be in the day. If you're not present when they come through in a sweep, you will lose all your property. There is a method by which property can be stored, but if you have a half-eaten sandwich or some blood on a blanket or a needle, could be an insulin needle, 
in your tent a health hazard. They'll trash everything. You are left with nothing to try to figure out how you're gonna survive now. You're left trying to survive without any protection of the elements. And you move a few blocks over and the city comes in a week later and you get swept again. And so that cycle where people are moving like homeless whack-a-mole is the reality in our city in Denver right now. We have chosen a criminal justice approach rather than a homelessness resolution approach. I don't think that that approach is going to lead to positive outcomes for anyone. The individual, the police, and it doesn't lead to positive outcomes for neighborhoods either. There's a woman who was at a sort of encampment area with her husband, and then the police came to force them to move, and her husband happened to have an old warrant, and so they took him in. She was forced to move. She moved to a hidden alley, and then she was raped. There's other women I know who have been in similar sorts of circumstances, women who ended up having to go tent hop and stay with a man who has raped them. So those are just things that we need to really take to heart when we're thinking about whether we should sweep an encampment or not. People on the streets know their safety best. They know what makes them feel safest and why they are staying in that environment is usually because of safety. It's important to underscore this point about safety. In 2021, the number of people who were without housing who died outside in Denver and the surrounding counties was at least 269, an increase of 85% from 2016. The leading causes of those deaths were overdose, blunt force trauma, exposure, homicide, and suicide. The reality is that people living without housing regularly face situations that are quite literally a matter of life and death. Which begs the question, how do people, once unhoused, find their way back into a home? Is it as simple as finding and holding a job? Roughly 40% of our homeless population do have jobs. You have to work more hours than there are in a day to afford, you know, one-bedroom apartment in Denver. It just doesn't add up. If you are trying to get a job, the number of barriers that you have are insurmountable. Things like not having an ID, not being able to store your property somewhere, not having a place to shower. Many employment places will not hire you if they find out you're homeless. The experience of homelessness itself is extraordinarily traumatic because you're constantly in survival mode. All of the people who walk by me on the sidewalk and give me that look that says, what's wrong with you? And that assumes that I'm a bad person builds up over time and can make it really difficult for people experiencing homelessness to reach out because they feel so discarded by society, they take that on themselves. That's not to say that there aren't people that are experiencing homelessness who haven't engaged in activities that may perpetuate that experience for them. But if they don't have the support system to help them talk through that or help them recognize those behaviors or address a mental health issue that may be persistent, then they can't course correct. 
you know, homeless shelters were intended to be a short-term emergency intervention for people. Somebody loses a job, winds up on the streets, they go into a shelter, stay for a few nights, get back to work, and then get back on their feet. That is not the way homeless shelters work anymore. It's focused on keeping people safe and keeping people alive for a night, which it does. But it has not become actually a homelessness resolution system. So for an individual who's experiencing homelessness, it is likely that we are spending as taxpayers thirty dollars to $50,000 a year for the emergency services that they need. But when we put somebody in housing, even if we're providing supportive services at a pretty high level, it's only about $26,000. And that individual eventually stabilizes and those costs go down. So we're paying every day for homelessness to exist and be managed. We're just not paying for the solutions that give people pathways to stability. We have clinicians who tell me every day, if I could write a prescription for housing, I could solve this person's health care issues. How can you maintain a medication regimen if you don't have a place to store your medication? How are you going to treat a wounded leg if you don't have a place to rest? How are you going to be able to overcome COVID if you don't have a place to quarantine and recover? So Housing First is a philosophy of housing people. It means that you reduce all of the barriers to housing to get somebody inside, and then you begin to work with them on the issues that led to their homelessness or their housing instability. You're kind of starting that path of better investment because they're no longer accessing emergency shelters, emergency rooms, detox facilities, or the criminal justice system. But it's not housing first only. It has to be housing accompanied with services. You don't just leave somebody to languish with their issues once they're in housing if it's done appropriately. But is there enough of this kind of supportive housing in Denver to meet our community's needs? The reality is you have to be hooked up with a case manager at the right time with the right types of conditions to push them up in the list to pull a few strings to get them into one of these housing units. In the Denver metro area, we're seeing an increase in visible homelessness because we're not getting deeply affordable and supportive housing units online fast enough. We really need an interjection of new capacity, additional players in the space that aren't just nonprofits. We need government stepping in in new kinds of ways. We need for-profit players as well. And all those kinds of things could help deliver us into a new phase where we're actually focused on homelessness resolution and actually producing the housing resources necessary. The community of Denver passed Measure 2B, which will be up to $45 million for homelessness services, shelter, and supportive housing. But it feels a little too late for us to get ahead of a problem that we're so far behind on. So if we can make the investments and we can get the political will, I think we can find that homelessness, while it will never cease to exist, it will be rare, it will be brief, and it will be resolvable. And we can start using our emergency systems like shelter as true emergency systems and not as long-term solutions. If the goal is to cultivate an elevated Denver, 
We can't be satisfied with the 30,000-foot view of homelessness or any of the other challenges that keep our friends and neighbors from really thriving. We need to move closer and really meet our neighbors, hear their stories, and understand what life in Denver is for folks we might not meet in our social circles. Let's start with our neighbors who have been or are currently unhoused. And as we do, we can use their stories to help us understand the larger systems at play. Or as Cole Chandler put it, It's not the case that if we just solve for the thousand people that are on the streets tonight, suddenly homelessness would go away. There is still a system that's creating homelessness. So, friends, neighbors, this first episode is just the tip of the iceberg. What lies ahead is amazing in ways both inspiring and troubling, challenging and hopeful. You'll hear from people with the city of Denver working to solve this problem. You'll understand the best-in-class programs that are already making a big difference in Denver and why they work so well. You'll grapple with the challenge of building affordable housing in the private market. You'll discover the shocking complexity that faces single mothers without stable housing. And you'll meet some of your neighbors who have overcome homelessness and some who are still striving to do so. Jana, Tony, and I invite you to join us for the rest of this series to find out what you can do to cultivate an elevated Denver. Before we close, I want to share some raw audio from the very end of Kathy Alderman's interview that will let you know how episode two came to be and what you'll find there. Just one other question for you, Kathy, and if you'd rather us turn this off for the answer, that's fine, but I'll just ask it. We think that our next step is probably going to meet a number of people that are or recently have experienced homelessness. Um, And so I'm curious if if you'd be willing to kind of help make an introduction. I sound hesitant because, and I always sound hesitant with everybody who asks this question, because this can be very intimidating for people to tell their story, and it can be really traumatizing, and what we're trying to do is create safe spaces. That being said, we have a lot of people who come to us and want to tell their stories. A few weeks later, a brave woman named Myra stepped forward and agreed to meet with us for an interview. I mean, I'm nervous, but, you know, I think my story is just as important as everybody else's. I'm willing to share my story. Myra's story lies ahead in episode two. Join us. Thank you to Nathan Church, our editor, sound designer, and barista. Production was provided by Havy Pro Cinema. Elevated Denver is produced and critiqued by Tony Minardi. Strategy, planning, and social distancing are provided by Jonna Flood. The all-local music you heard in this episode is thanks to our music supervisor, Zach Warkenton, and features Ono Khan and Sarah Slayton. Let your hands let go, let go, let Thank you also to China Caliph, who helped to develop the idea for this production. I'm your director and host, Nathan Havey. If you want to go deeper, you'll find background and extras at elevateddenver.co, like Colorado. 
And while you're there, jump on the email list so we can be in touch and hopefully get your help too. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver. With you.